Hey everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Question, did you know that one out of five people in the United States have a disability? Yep, 20%. Now, that is a much higher percentage than I would have guessed just a short time ago, and it is one of the reasons why those of us who love and care about outdoor recreation really need to know about all that is happening in the world of adaptive sports and adaptive recreation. So to get an overview of the history and the current state of adaptive sports and recreation, I recently sat down with Chris Reed, who often goes by Reed, and Elizabeth Betty Philbin of the Adaptive Sports Center of Crested Butte. Now, as you are about to see, the adaptive sports and recreation world is filled with a lot of impressive people and programs in a bunch of different places. So to all of the adaptive programs out there, thank you for expanding the experiences of and the opportunities for so many participants, including all of the staff and volunteers who get to work with them. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Betty and read. Okay, well, I am very happy to be here in Blister headquarters with Betty and with Chris Reed. We just had a remarkable tour of the Adaptive Sports Center. So Betty and Reed, thank you for that. But before we get going here, I think I want to back up all the way and just talk about or have you answer the question when we're talking about adaptive sports or adaptive recreation, what are we talking about? Betty? Sure. So adaptive sports are endless. Um, So when you think about any outdoor activity that one might like to participate in, adaptive sports is inclusive to people with disabilities. When we're talking about Colorado outdoor recreation, we're doing rock climbing, canoeing, kayaking, ropes course, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding. Any of those activities that would include people with disabilities would be adaptive recreation. Reed, how'd she do? Awesome. Yeah, spot on. It's I agree. Yeah. It's a it's a way to take, you know, kind of mainstream activities and make tweaks and adjustments and with either on the fly or with really specialized gear and open it up to a whole um, a very broad audience of of people who would like to try those things. Can we talk a little bit about the history of this? I mean, I don't know if there's something like an official or unofficial history about sort of the birth of adaptive recreation or adaptive sports. Um, yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of the stuff that where this has evolved today to be, you know, pretty like it's it's very widespread these days and exceptional equipment and there's, you know, there's academic majors and professions and all that. Anyway, all that has come from the history of um, kind of the post-World War II era of injured soldiers coming home from war and wanting to get back out there and and doing things with their families and with their friends. And, and it all really kind of evolved from there. So um, things like advancements in prosthetics and things back in the day, back in the 50s and, and 60s. That was, you know, then it started being seen as a form of therapy and therapeutic value as we got into the 60s and the 70s. And then it started seeing its way into community recreation programs and for long-term, ongoing, lifelong interests um, kind of there. And and now it's gotten very specialized where people are performing it 
extremely high levels in some of these activities. And even more so, it's become very available for, you know, whole, like I said, a whole broad audience of people out there from the casual user to the dedicated user to the competitive athlete and everyone in between friends and families and on how that can be involved as well. So it's really, you know, it's really expanded since those early days in the in the 50s and late 40s. So then let me ask you a little bit about kind of the origin story or development of the more outdoor focused aspects of adaptive recreation. I mean, which is certainly what you all are doing at the Adaptive Sports Center, but talk a little bit about that development and trajectory and history. Sure. Um, so kind of the, you know, what, what I consider, and, and this is a, a massive, massive compliment, is the grandfather of adaptive recreation um, is a guy named Hal O'Leary. Um, he was based over in Winter Park, and he's actually a Canadian. And he's, the story goes, if I remember correctly, is he, uh, uh, I worked with Hal years ago, so I got to hear the uh, the version of this on the back of a raft one day. He uh, he moved from, I believe, Montreal and ended up in Colorado and kind of bounced around from some ski areas. And um, long story short, he ended up in, in Winter Park and as a ski instructor, uh, dedicated skier, Canadian, loved the sport. Through a, a series of events, I don't remember the exact details, uh, he found himself in a position where he was to take um, some children with disabilities on a ski trip um, that were coming up from Denver. And back then, this is early 70s, like there wasn't a lot of technology back then and anything ex existed was being made on the spot or made in small batches here and there. And and he figured out how to do it. And um, and through his efforts, eventually the National Sports Center for the Disabled in Winter Park was born. And, um, and that's an exceptional program that's been around for a long, long time. And they've, through the years, like the historical reference of adaptive skiing in particular and adaptive recreation, they've, they've had a huge piece in, in kind of and kind of setting the tone, you know, what was possible in the 70s through the 80s, and, and they continue to operate at a very high level today. And then kind of parallel to that, and, and I don't know the history of this as well, but there was also a program up in Maine that started about that time, maybe a few years later, kind of a similar story. And they didn't necessarily start in cahoots with each other, it was just more by happenstance about the same time. And, uh, and they went on to really evolve. And, and from those two efforts, like adaptive programs and adaptive scheme programs like ours kind of started to evolve and, and really pop up in, in you know, all the kind of cool mountain towns throughout the West and, and many in Canada and so on. And I'm so curious about like that spread then. So we're talking about Winter Park and Maine developing these programs. And then it just was a bit of a word of mouth thing. Yeah, you know, and it's probably each, every program out there, including ours, has its own story. And so then, you know, it all, all was um, leading up to those times. So our program started in the late 80s and um, by a group of locals and a very grassroots effort, you know, kind of like um, running out of the back room of the building that gave them free space type of thing. And and that's kind of a similar story to a lot of the programs out there, especially the ones that have been around for a long time as they started off very small um, very humble beginnings, a uh, group of, you know, very dedicated people to get them going, a lot of volunteer time, you know, true grassroots nonprofit type mindsets. And then like with all good organizations, they have all grown and including ours, they've all grown over time. And they have all evolved to be these really phenomenal resources for people all over the country. And um, like I said, most major ski towns have a really good adaptive program at this point. We collaborate with a lot of them and trade notes with a lot of them. Um, it's an outstanding community of people, like just really dedicated to what they do. And, and then each program since those beginnings have all evolved to have their own personalities. And their program personalities are really based on kind of where they're at, whether it be Crested Butte or Park City or Winter Park or Telluride or Breckenridge or Bend, Oregon, all these places. And, 
you know, and their, their organizations really kind of reflect the energy of those specific communities. And I think that's what ultimately attracts the participants to go to those areas because they kind of gravitate to those in energies that each program has. Um, I think Reed touched on the winter programs a lot, and it seems like you know a lot of the programs started with winter because there's that infrastructure with the resort being there. It's pretty straightforward once you, you know, get out on the snow and you can just run that day after day. But I've been with outdoor adventure kind of programming for the last ten years, and where I've seen the most growth is with summer programming. So it looks like a lot of the programs have, you know, they got winter down pretty well, and then they started to dabble in summer even more. And um, our program is equally as busy in the summer now as we are in the winter, which is, you know, pretty wild because the winter program was around a lot longer. So I've seen a lot of growth in the summer programming for sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. So we'll call it like the Crested Butte program or chapter as I understand it, 1987 is when it started, but specifically as a adaptive ski program. Do I have this right? Yes. Okay. That's what it was. You talked about this was very grassroots. When did the Crested Butte program start to emerge into more of an adaptive center, adaptive sports center? Yeah. So year-round programming um, kind of started in the late 90s, I want to say 98 was kind of the pilot year of the summer program for our program. And our executive director, Chris Hensley, and a former employee of ours named Tara Gorman, who is exceptional and now working for a really good program up in Minnesota, and a gal by the name of Karen Reeder, they took themselves upon, upon themselves to start running some pilot programmings for summer. And very small at that time, you know, like it was a very small, a short season, a much different one what we're doing now. But they, you know, they they put down the stepping stones for that to develop and, and grow. So... I want to ask both of you, first of all, we'll have you talk about your specific titles and roles at the Adaptive Sports Center, and then talk a bit about how you both came to get interested in and involved with the adaptive recreational scene. Betty, let's start with you. Sure. I am the assistant program director with the Adaptive Sports Center, so my main job duties are really broadly would be overseeing daily operations. So making sure the days are running smoothly. I help manage the staff, volunteer training program, have some aspects in the budget management. So I'm making sure things run smoothly, risk management, kind of keeping my eyes on things day in, day out. Got my hands in a lot of different areas. I got my start in the adaptive sports world back when I was probably like 10 or 11. I was volunteering at a rehab hospital by um, my house in Michigan, and I started with adaptive ballet. Um, and anyone that knows me knows that that is not my strength, but I found it to be really fun. And it led me to kind of more activities that I actually was interested in. So wheelchair basketball, um, wheelchair tennis, adaptive golf. And um, I was into skiing personally, but I'd never been west of Chicago and I like heard about Crested Butte and I was like, what is this place? I didn't know you could like have a career in this field. And so I interned in 2008, 2009 and was just blown away that there was so much skill and expertise in the people that worked at the Adaptive Sports Center. Um, they had clearly like devoted their lives to being really good at what they do. So from that moment on, I was hooked and it combines what I love and that's, you know, working and helping people and then also being outside. Um, so that's why I still work here. Yeah. So my, I'm the program director at Adaptive. And what that means is I get to work with a lot of really awesome people like, like Betty and our whole admin staff and all of our instructors, top-notch group of people, our admin staff, our board, whole group of volunteers here. So 
it's uh it's awesome but but specifically i kind of in the conduit between kind of organizational efforts and um and you know kind of helping where organizational efforts eventually get to the programming field so you know relationship management like what rehab hospitals we get involved with out some outreach components working with the development team on some fundraising um, I work closely with our ED on numerous issues. Um, we have numerous board committees that help give us direction on how we can go both both on our staff's expertise and what we think is realistic, connecting with ideas and outside resources and things like that. Um, and then a whole host of, you know, admins tasks like budgeting and over staff oversight, you know, the list goes on. So we all we all are the whole admin staff programming development business crew everyone we wear a lot of hats and i think that's just the nature of a nonprofit organization so each week brings a lot to figure out a lot to problem solve and um and that's really been highlighted by the times we're in right now but um, we're extremely fortunate to work with um, extremely motivated extremely intelligent folks who come in game on every day and, and we and we get all this super cool stuff done so it's really good um, I've been with the program since 99, I believe. I did leave for a little stint there to go back to school. Um, I got my start. I've been in the outdoor industry since 93 or 4. It's all starting to fade away a little bit. It's been a long time. And um, I got my start, long story short, is as a physical therapy major. And I enjoyed it. You know, it was like I have all things I could choose from. It was, it was cool. It was interesting and stuff. And then I found out about recreation therapy just by the luck of the draw um, and a program out at the University of Utah. And it caught my eye and I looked into it and I ended up tra transferring and changing majors. And it was, a, it was an exceptional move. So I went and studied rec therapy as my undergrad. And, and uh, that put me on a path to then go work at the Winter Park program. And then I went into mainstream recreation for a little bit with some adventure guiding and some other programs that were non-adaptive. And, and I got kind of bored. Like I kind of missed the um, problem solving that the adaptive world brought in. I definitely missed the culture that the adaptive world had. And, uh, and I gravitated back to it. And that's how I found this program. I grew up, I grew up in Car Springs. I skied here a lot as a kid and had a very fond connection with Crested Butte. And I actually lived here um, before I started working for the program. Had a really great call one day with our executive director, Chris Hensley. And, and I was wanting to get back to Crested Butte and he hired me and kind of the rest is history. Eventually went back and got a master's in outdoor ed. And then I was also the group and logistics person for a long time and an intern supervisor, and that all evolved. The program's much smaller back then, so lots of hats. And then that evolved to um, being a program director and been kind of in that role ever since. So, yeah, it's been a great ride. So I'm interested in this next question, both kind of on a macro level and then more specifically to the people that you have coming into the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte here. But if we wanted to try to identify the population of adaptive sports participants, how would you break down, say, those folks who have certain congenital issues versus folks that have had an accident happen or, it, you know, uh, maybe a degenerative issue or something like that. Can you speak to that at kind of a macro and then more local level? It's a good question. It's really interesting. It's, it's you know, as far as our program, the demographics we serve are pretty split. It's, it's, it's surprisingly even in any way you look at it. So people who have disabilities that are caused by a traumatic experience like a car wreck or, or something like that, as opposed to someone who's was born um, with a, whatever condition they, they have. Um, and then adults, children's male, female, you know, it's like, it's pretty split demographics across the board as far as, is breaking that down. For, we definitely are in the bell curve of like what most people are who are out there doing adaptive or doing any type of recreation from an age standpoint. So 
the you know the the kind of the bell curve of our program is is people in their you know early teens through late mid 50s you know late 40s mid 50s is probably the majority of the people we see but we do see people much younger and much older than that as well and so it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty balanced demographic as far as those considerations go so again you're saying that's kind of the national or international picture and the folks that come through the crested butte program that looks a lot like the kind of breakdown at the national or international level. Yeah, you know, I think that's uh, in a in a very general sense. I think is the key point there, and how all that breaks down to you know how many how many people in the country have been born with a disability as opposed to acquired one through life, like how those things measure out. I don't know exactly, but it's probably you know within some ballpark range of of similar to what we see. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, in the United States, one in five. Americans have a disability. And so of those that are participating in adaptive sports, I'd say that we're probably seeing what's pretty average in the United States right now. So I want to ask you then just a little bit about terminology, right? That's a massive segment of the population, by the way, one out of five. And I think it's worth asking if there are changes in terms of the terminologies that these communities prefer to be called. But I, I imagine that this is something that you, given how long that you folks have been involved in the adaptive recreational space, you've sort of seen terms gain acceptance, fall out of favor and the like. Could you give us a bit of an update on terminology? Yeah, I would say um, terminology is always changing and within different subgroups of the populations we're working with, there might be even different terminology there. Some things that are okay to say while they're, you know, all together, but would be inappropriate for me to come in in a conversation and use. So I think kind of the safest bet is to use person first language. There's tons of resources online. Disability etiquette is a great resource. Just Googling that you'll likely find something helpful there. But person first language, um, the general idea behind that is these individuals that we're working with, like they just, they happen to have a disability, um, but they are people getting out and doing things just like you know, anyone else out there. And so, you know, acknowledging that, you know, they're a person, they happen to have a spinal cord injury. Um, so an example of just the general populations we're working with, you could just say people with disabilities or an individual who uses a wheelchair. That would be another example. Um, but terms like wheelchair bound or, you know, terms like suffering or afflicted, those are kind of out. Um, that language is old. Um, we don't say handicapped. Yeah, I think that, you know, terminology is important, but I also think just interactions where you're you're not treating them any different than anyone else. You know, if someone's out there skiing and the equipment that they're using looks entirely different than yours, I bet you actually can find something common about your equipment. They likely have a ski that's sliding on the surface that you're skiing on too. So, you know, I, I hear a lot of people get frustrated about being called an inspiration. Um, you know, really they're, they're getting out and they're, they're skiing just like, you know, the person next to them. So um, treating them, I think like everyone else would be greatly appreciated. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Well said. Um, don't have much to add to that, but yeah, you know, people are people. And I, I think the one point that Betty made that's great is like, we all have much more in common than, than differences, no matter what our situation is. And I think if you really drill down on the fact that we're, that people are people and that's where you want to start with just, you know, just really kind of, you know, thoughtful and respectful interaction, then, uh, then you're on the right track. I also think uh, when people are 
interacting with our populations, they do get really nervous about what they're supposed to say. And I think allowing yourself to also just be natural. You know, if you tell someone who has a visual impairment, like, see you later. And then you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. Like, it's okay. Like, that's a that's a term that everyone uses. And they might say something like, oh, yeah, I wish, you know, they might have some funny comment back. But that's just them trying to also normalize that interaction with you. So um, I think just being natural and being yourself is what's most appreciated. And as soon as you, the faster you get past those kind of pre preconceived boundaries you might have, then it just gets really comfortable and awesome. And then next thing you know, you're, you're, you're getting to know the person. And that's where the cool things start happening. This is a little less on terminology, but more on general etiquette. Like certain behaviors, I would say, like don't overhelp someone. You know, someone, their gait pattern might look like they need help, but that's actually like how they walk and they're getting around totally fine without your help. So I think it's okay to offer help, but don't assume that the person needs help. Be really aware of, you know, assistive devices that you might be touching. Like don't move someone's wheelchair away from them. Don't grab their wheelchair. That can be seen as an extension of their body. That's how they get places. So I think being um, really good at communicating and asking if you if they need help before you go ahead and assume. It's a really interesting thing, right? And I hope this is important. I mean, I think it is probably natural and it is probably very well intended, but if you see somebody, you know, on a sit ski or a buy ski or something in line and you are like, I want to say the right thing right now. It is interesting. And I say this with all compassion, but we can actually dehumanize the other way, right? Like if it gets a little too heavy on the, you're such an inspiration or let me help you, right? It's like, so I almost feel like, and I'll see if you guys agree with this, but it's almost like if you're going to err in those conversations where you feel like you don't quite know what to say, err on the side of going fully natural as if you're just talking to like a friend or something. Hey, how are you? How's it going? Right? Be in the moment. I mean, you know, if it's if you're skiing or biking and the conditions are phenomenal, you're like, man, the conditions are great today, aren't they? I mean, it's, you know, it's all about being out there together and that common thread of sport and being human and, and trying new things and going for it. And everyone looks at those things differently and, and stuff. And I think if you just take it down to that level, you're on the right track. I mean, it's really that, that it can be that straightforward. I agree. And I also think curiosity is okay. You know, like if you see someone's monoski and it has the coolest shock you've ever seen and you know a little bit about shocks and you want to ask about it, like, cool, they'd probably love that. Um, so it's also okay to, I think, engage a little bit about the activity that they're doing. That is a great segue into my next question. Let's talk a little bit about the gear. In all of these different adaptive sports, what would you say or which sport do you think we've seen the most innovations or improvements in terms of the actual equipment? In the outdoor realm, I'd put my money on skiing with mountain biking being a very close second and maybe starting to surpass. I would say mountain biking as number one. Let's talk about it. Let's start there. What are, what have we seen in adaptive bike technology? I guess I've, I think I've seen that sport take off more because you're not relying on a chairlift necessarily. So it can meet more user groups. Um, and then there's even the development of like electronic assists, um, on bikes. So e-assists are becoming more common and more acceptable for, you know, adaptive bikes. And so you can, you know, join your family for a hike. You can get to more places. 
go fly fishing? You can go fly fishing with your e-bike. I just think skiing, it does still kind of fit a pretty particular group of people. So I, I've just seen like the, the mountain biking take off more because the bikes have changed to meet a lot of different goals. But I do feel like often the goals of skiing, it's to, you know, it's to get from the top of the mountain and down. And so I think there's so many different bikes and you know, there's off-road hand cycles, but there's also recumbent bikes that have come a long way that can go really cool places. And that's why I feel like mountain biking, but Reed's been in the ski world longer. So. Well, I agree. I think the biking has been phenomenal. I think that I 100% agree that the, the uh, development curve of biking has been much more steeper. I mean, in the last, just the hand, last handful of years, it's really taken off, you know, as opposed to what was around where skiing has been much longer evolution. I would give skiing credit for having people realize that you can get out there in some pretty sweet gear and really get after it at a, at a high level uh, or whatever level's high to you based on the user. So I think I give skiing credit for setting that mindset as far as using gear to achieve something that's really fun and sweet and cool and mainstream. But the bikes, as far as being a versatile piece of equipment, you can't, I mean, they're just all the reasons that we just discussed. It's, uh, they're extremely cool. Let's talk a little bit more about the ski side. I mean, has the specific innovation been in terms of the shocks on mono skis or bi skis or? That's a, that's a big question. Suspension's huge. No question about it. Bucket or the seating design, we call them buckets in the, in the biz is huge. The bucket is essentially the ski boot. Everything happens. If you have a loose bucket, you're going to have a, you're going to have a slower reaction to your ski. If you have a nice snug bucket, just like ski boots, the new ski designs, the actual ski that's actually on the snow, as opposed to the overall rig has made a big difference. And a lot of, you know, a lot of versatility there for all skiers, including adaptive skiers has really opened up. And then different ways of looking at different designs for different ability levels, I think is, is key. So really high kind of high skis that can really angle and get a really deep carve. Like you see in the Paralympics to skis that are being really well designed, but have a low center of gravity that are really user-friendly to a wide range of people. And so it list goes on and on. There's a lot to consider there. Yeah. I would also add on that, um, kind of the gizmos and gadgets of skiing has improved greatly. So adaptive specific things are being built now. Um, I think our duct tape usage has decreased over the last 10 years since I've been here. We do still use it and we always want to encourage innovation because it gets us thinking, right? So I think Reed mentioned it maybe earlier, but we're always trying to, you know, develop things specific for the person that's there. There's less duct tape involved, less one-time use. There's more equipment that's being made that can be used for multiple people and for- yeah, Built for purpose. Yeah, built for purpose things. So that's really helped advance. Um, for example, um, we sometimes have individuals where it's really hard for them to fit um, into a ski boot because of maybe the way their foot is shaped. So they now make this awesome contraption. I can't remember what it's called, but um, you can wear a snowboard boot and a snowboard binding that actually fits into the ski. And so that is an awesome thing for some of our participants who may have had to have gone the route of snowboarding, but actually wanted to ski. So now they can, you know, still ski. So that's just one example, but there's tons of different things that are out there that can help just people advance and be a little more independent out there with the right equipment. So give us a sense here at the Adaptive Sports Center here in Crested Butte, like how many users are coming through the doors either in a year or if you want to break it down winter versus non-winter help us understand that yeah we have about 1200 unique individuals that would come through the program in any given year and that continues to grow 
and the it and it's again it's split uh, about 50-50 for winter and summer. 50-50 now. Already now. So like you'd said at the beginning that like the non-winter side of things was really growing, but we're already close to 50-50 here. It's about actually I'm going to correct myself. It's about 50-50 for user days, but we do see more people in the winter time. Summer, we do a lot of group programming, so um, we're able to put out more lessons with less instructors. Yeah, longer stays on average in the summer, um, more people coming through in the winter. Okay. So this was the thing that is really interesting, and I didn't have a very good handle on this till we just went and had this tour over at the Adaptive Sports Center. But you guys kind of corrected me a little bit. I, I was so focused on the on-snow time, and you have just basically this, what seems like this kind of massive program and programming going on over there, right? I mean, so there is a climbing wall at the Adaptive Sports Center, and you were talking about the uptake on non-winter activities, and then we were standing there in the beautiful kitchen and talking about the increasing programming you're doing just in terms of providing some information and instruction about diet. And then we started talking about art therapy. And it's like, my goodness, like there is a lot happening over there beyond people getting on snow to ski. So I'd love to hear you maybe talk a little bit about that. And then also, if that is more unique to Crested Butte, or are you seeing other adaptive centers around the country also getting into all kinds of different programming as you guys are doing here. Generally speaking, I think a lot of the programs out there are doing a really good job of keeping things, their offerings really diverse. And so you have the adventure component, you know, the biking, the skiing, those things. People can't do that for, hardly anybody can do that for 10 hours a day or yeah. whatever. So there's a lot of time when someone's here that there's opportunities to learn other things. And and so those are things like nutrition and how to cook well and what diet means for a healthy lifestyle and and um, how to express yourself in different ways, like through art or photography or you know, journaling or those things. So, you know, we, we, we're fortunate enough here. We have a really long average stay, um, just given the location of our program. We're destination. We're, you know, we're a long ways from anyone. We have very few people just driving up from wherever just for a day. Um, so most people that come and see us, they're they're here for numerous days, which means we have mornings and evenings and afternoons and, and things where they're not engaged in the in the adventure activity. So um, so that's a huge opportunity to introduce some things and take advantage of that time and, and show people the, these things. It's really cool. I mean, our, our, our people that come through are incredibly creative. They're incredibly smart. They're talented. They maybe were a photographer in high school. They hadn't touched a camera in 20 years. Now they have an opportunity to do it again. And, you know, you have all these little sub stories and you can kind of you can kind of make these offerings and see where people gravitate to. And, and our building over there is very much designed to facilitate those things. And I think one of the things we're talking about over there um, that's really important to us is the opportunity is, is like, hey, you want to go skiing in Crested Butte? You want to go climbing in Crested Butte? Like that gets people's attention. They're like, yeah, I'll sign up to do that. And then they come here and they have this this time to meet other folks and the network friendships. And so all those underlying things that happen during the visit, um, in a lot of ways, they can be bigger than the actual activity that got them here. Um, because those are the things that create networks and opportunities and things they can do at home 
and things they don't necessarily need all the fancy equipment to do and all those you know all those opportunities you have in life where you have free time to do them and things like that and that's extremely important to to our folks we had an art show a couple summers ago by a group in car springs and and they part of their debrief was creating art and then they did an art show for us up on the fourth floor gallery and it was really good like and then the other group came up and checked it out so these two groups one was from chicago the other was from car springs they would have never organically interacted with each other in a million years and next thing you know they're all looking at each other's art together and having these conversations around you know their trips and things like that so it's, it's those things that create opportunity it's just really really cool to watch and it's really important to offer yeah and i mean the building itself that facility is set up so incredibly well too. So when you're talking about sometimes the highlight is the connections, the other people that a person gets to meet when they show up here. Like I get that now having like been through the whole facility and talk a little bit about actually that lodging component. I have to confess, I wasn't even aware that people can and do stay there, but that's a huge component of the adaptive sports center here. Yeah, um, we have a lodge that's um, fully accessible on the third floor. Um, it's been a game changer for a lot of our participants that ha- that came last winter and over the summer. It's helped with a few things. One, their commute down to programming is very short. They're just taking the elevator, the stairs down. So what that means, it sounds like a little thing, but it's actually, it gives them a lot more programming time. Um, so instead of having to come up from town and transfer into the van twice, they're they're ready to roll. Um, they're also expending less energy getting just to the program office every morning. But we have, I think we can sleep around 15 people. And some are set up with twin beds that can be coupled together, got accessible um, bathrooms. We, The bedrooms and bathrooms aren't really the highlight. I don't know why I touched on that first. The main focus is the big common space that we have. And, and the idea is that people can get together, you know, after their lessons, after the day of programming and talk about the experiences that they had and, you know, laugh about when they fell off the chairlift or whatever may have happened out there. And um, there's a kitchen in there. So everyone's kind of driven out of their bedrooms to engage with each other and find commonalities. Um, over the summer, I had popped up there and we had a group of veterans that were up there and I was helping someone fix their computer. And I don't know how to fix computers, so it's still broken. But they were talking about how, you know, know they had spent every night like really late staying up and just like talking about their time in war and what that was like for them and they were loving it they were so stoked to like have that population to be chatting with and then to be able to go out and you know bike or hike the next day Um, so the lodging it's a huge convenience and amenity that we can offer living here in Crested Butte you know it's fine it's hard to find accessible lodging anywhere in a historical district so it's saving the program a lot of money and it's really pretty top-notch for the participants. Um, other things we've heard is it's, it's so nice to like know that participants like knowing that Adaptive thought this was important for them so that this was a focus and we made it happen on the third floor and it's it's been really great. And we should say too, I mean, first of all, it's a beautiful facility. Second, you did a nice job talking about the big community room and and the rest and and just in terms of drawing people and in sort of you just naturally would go hang out in that space now you are going to be meeting other people and the like but the last thing is in case anybody's unclear it's like how many footsteps to the chairlift i mean like it's it's literally i mean a stone's throw so it is it would be very difficult to get a like 
better <laughs> spot than this place. So it's it's just so cool. I mean, every day, like we see it every day as we walk into Blister headquarters and like that that incredible building is an adaptive sports center is kind of the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it's been it's been phenomenal. I want to let you both get back to, you know, doing the work of running an adaptive sports center. So I'm going to let you go soon, but maybe just to wrap here, if I were to ask you, like, what three things do you think are most important for people to know about adaptive sports programs? How would you answer that question? Sure. Um, I would say that adaptive sports programming can be inclusive to your family and friends, which is huge. Um, so our program um, is open to family and friends. They can all go out and do the same activity together. One of the things, you know, sometimes people with disabilities experience is they often, you know, are have to go to a special school, different school, different doctor all the time, whatever it may be. So to have that opportunity to come to one place and have the entire family experience the same thing, um, start and end at the same time is um, really neat. So, you know, maybe coming here or to another adaptive program once or twice can help you gain those skills to be able to go mountain biking with your family and experience um, kind of the outdoors all together, which can be really a game changer for your whole family. Agreed. That's huge. Um, I think the other one is that they're not as far away from you as you might think. Um, there's really good ones all over the country for all different types of sports. And I think a quick Google search for adaptive sports centers near me or something like that, or, or finding some resources through a local college or your local um, park and recreation program through your community, through your city, um, would point you in the direction of some really, really good resources that are out there. And um, and there's some great, not even some, there's a ton of great programs all over the country to get involved with. And it would be hard to find activity these days that's not being offered by somebody, for sure. I'd also recommend looking up Move United. They are kind of our governing body for adaptive sports programs, and they um, they have tons of chapters all over the country. They have an awesome map on their website where you can click on your state and you can see which adaptive programs might be around you. They have also like different job opportunities if you're interested in getting involved in adaptive sports. They're a wonderful resource. Um, there's some training stuff on there. Highly recommend reaching out to them and getting on their website and learning more about different programs all around the country. And for someone who is listening to this who might be interested in potentially participating or say getting involved, becoming an instructor, best place for them to go? Would that also be Move United? Yeah, Move United is a great resource for that. Like when we have jobs that are available, we send it to Move United. It ends up on a job posting page there. So most um, adaptive programs are doing the same. Yeah. And uh, volunteering with a program near you is a great way to get your foot in the door and really learn the ins and outs. You know, we've hired staff through our volunteer program in the past, and it's a great way to, um, to check it all out for sure. And we need good volunteers. Every program out there really needs good volunteers. So that's yeah. so good. Last question. We're still kind of in a COVID world. How are you navigating this current season? Have have we hit a big pause button right now? Are we starting to bring things online? Is it as much of a, you're figuring it out just like all the rest of us are in every, every, every single walk of life or? Um, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, we operated this summer, we learned some things and we're, we're taking a, a, a cautious approach to 
what we're offering and you know you hit the nail on the head we're all in the same boat i mean globally right now yeah. so it's a moving target as everyone's learning and so things are changing and um and so we're trying to be really smart about that our program along with other programs they're they're putting their kind of their protocols and their uh, major considerations on their websites and um, and we're really planning on teaming up with our parents and our participants and the people who are involved with us to work with them and, and seeing if it's a good time to program or not. Um, Adapt will be here for a long, long time. So if people are feeling it's better to uh, take a break and, and stay in that comfort zone, then that is a fine choice. And if people are getting antsy and, and looking for an outlet and decide they want to get outside and give it a try, that's also a fine choice. So it really comes down to um, the individual's, you know, interest and curiosity about what's appropriate for them. And, and I think as long as everyone's really paying attention to public health orders and underlying conditions and all those things that we've heard so much about over the past numerous months, then, um, then we're staged to do it well. It's going to be different. I think no matter what um, programming will feel different. We're going to have different tactics and different protocols and things like that. But the important thing is to keep the cogs turning and, and be available for um, for people who feel it's a good option for them and, and keep chugging along. And, and we're all along with the rest of the planet. We're all very excited to get beyond this, but but we're focused on on trying to do it as, as best as we possibly can right now. So for anyone specifically interested in, you know, potentially coming to Crested Butte this season, what's the best move for them? Should they send an email? Should they make a phone call? Yeah, um, either one would work. You can call us at 970-349-2296. And my extension is 116, Elizabeth Betty Philbin. Elizabeth um, we'd Betty love Philbin. to answer your questions because, um, you know, things are a little different this um, season. And so we want to make sure that um, it's a good fit for you this year. But um, our website has tons of resources. So I'd also just recommend maybe even before that phone call, hopping on adaptivesports.org our, you know, kind of COVID information is on there and our registration process as well. But it'd be great to have a conversation, especially if you're new to the program. Hey, you two. Thank you. It's cool learning about the history of adaptive recreation and then learning a lot more about the specifics of what we've got going on, you know, just across the way here. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of ski towns and the fact that we have that building with you folks in it running the programming out of it that we do is just really kind of, I think, a point of pride for a lot of us around here. So keep up the good work and good luck this season. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to say um, a humongous thanks to the Crest Butte community. Uh, we talk a lot about our program and, and the things we do, but definitely a, a, a thing that brings people back is this town and this community and our volunteers and Elk Avenue and the valley that's so beautiful and you know just how welcome people feel when they come to Crestview and that is that is a huge piece of our of our puzzle of making this place great it goes out to this community that has been so supportive and generous to us over the years so um so anyway thank you Crested Butte we love you and um and it, your support is 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 pivotal to what we do we can't thank you enough I agree thank you for the opportunity appreciate it on that note Betty it's back to work Duh. Elizabeth here now yeah, it's <laughs> Elizabeth, right? Time for Elizabeth to unleash Elizabeth and, and let you get back to work. So uh, to, to Elizabeth and to Reed, thank you both. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review in iTunes and be sure to tell your friends about the show. 
I also want to say thanks to Reed and Betty for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will be talking to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, where we have a really fun conversation with Brendan Leonard of Semirad.com and the runner and film producer, Billy Yang. So subscribe to Off the Couch wherever you get your podcasts, and we will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>